Turn our attention here to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul, we're finally looking at the last chunk of this massive sentence that covers over 10 verses. For the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing how Paul has laid out this picture of who you are, who we are, apart from Jesus Christ, that we were estranged from God, aliens, strangers, Paul says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul then describes what happens in Jesus Christ and what God has done for us and what God has done to us and what God has done to us and through one another by uniting us to the body of Christ. Here, in these last few verses of Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is now giving the implications of everything we've been looking at over the last couple weeks. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to begin in verse 13. Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Skipping over to verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your church. Thank You for what You have done in not only uniting us to Yourself, but uniting us to one another, and that You have reconciled Your body to Yourself through Your death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. Lord, I do pray today that You would help us to understand the implications of what You have done, the implications that You have laid out so clearly that focus not so much on us on us as an individual, but focus on us as a body. Lord, with these implications, be our joy and our delight that we would love what you love, that we would cherish what you would cherish, so that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have this fantasy that my mind drifts to, this dream, and it is to, at any time, to to produce this piece of smoked brisket. I have these visions of sitting by my grill for hours on end with the smoke billowing out the side and after it having a nice, long, slow smoke for, I don't know, 12 hours or so, pulling out this pounds of meat that have this nice, thick bark on the outside, a, a nice pink, smoke, smoky layer around the outside edge, and you cut into it, and it's succulent, and it's juicy, and delicious, and just full of lots of smoky meatiness. And so my mind periodically drifts to cooking this thing, and I've tried. And um, you see, about a year or so ago, someone in my family had a smoker they weren't using, and they passed it on to me, and I'm very grateful for that. But there was a problem with this smoker, is that it doesn't really smoke very well. And so I started going online, and I looked up this, this smoker, and I began to find the various hacks that you can do to make this smoker smoke the way that the smoker should smoke. And so various modifications that you can make to, to increase your smoke output and regulate your temperature and all these various things so that one day I, too, 
could produce this piece of meat. Well, as I'm going through these various online forums talking about all the hacks you can make on it, pretty regularly in the midst of the forum, someone would say, yeah, I tried these different hacks, but eventually I had to go get the WSM. I'm like, oh, WSM. And then I'd read another post that would talk about so-and-so, yeah, I eventually got the WSM, I love the WSM, I love the WSM too. Well, what is the WSM? Introducing the Weber Smoky Mountain Griller and Smoker, the fulfillment of all of your smoking dreams. And so there are these forums with people who are fanatical about this thing and about how this thing has gone head-to-head in competitions of national competitions, and it is one, and these forums about how this versus the big green egg, because the big green egg really isn't a true smoker, because you don't get, get two-stage heating in the big green egg, all these different factors in it. Read things about, like, if you're going to buy one, do you get the medium-sized one, or do you get the large one, and various forums about various hacks. And anyone who's on these things loves talking about their Weber Smoky Mountain Grill. In fact, they talk about it every once in a while. Some of the community forums get together and they have a smoke day where they just get together with their smokers and just sit around and smoke and infuse themselves with hickory and apple and and walnut and all these different flavors of smoke that is marinating into their pores. What a picture of heaven that is. Um, (laughs) In fact, some of the people are so fanatic, they even post pictures of tattooing their Smoky Mountain Grill onto their leg. And all the various things they do and different things that you can do to improve your grilling experience so that you too can produce these amazing, these amazing ribs. And so I've been, you know, periodically go on these things and dream about the day that might one day happen to produce these types of things. And as I was dreaming about it and working on a sermon, I saw and said, you know what, this is kind of a picture of people's relationship with Jesus. <laughs> because, you know, the way that people view their Weber Smoky Mountain Grill is the way that many Christians view their relationship with Jesus. Is that they love to talk about it. They love to tell other people about it. Excited for the new things that they have discovered, the new benefits that they've recently received. Go on forums and learn about, hey, I've got this great article, let me pass this article on to you. Uh, That will encourage you in, in your faith, that will encourage you so that you too can, you know, produce whatever you want to produce in your grill so that you too can grow as a Christian as however you want to grow as a Christian. But you know what? You know, I mean, these community forums and these smoking events that are happening and there's one Weber Smoky Mountain Club that wants you to pay dues to be a part of their smoking club. You're like, you know what? I don't need to do that. I mean, I don't need, I mean, if I've got my Weber Smoky Mountain Grill, I don't need to be a part of a community to produce great grilled meat. I need to learn some things every once in a while. And people look at Jesus and say, I don't need to be a part of the church in order to have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, I can go online and I can find out various things that I need to know and need to do. And, you know, I don't really want to have to bother with being a part of a community. I don't want to have to do those things. I mean, after all, why? I can produce brisket all on my own. After all, why be a part of the church? I can have a relationship with Jesus all on my own. But the Apostle Paul gives a radically different picture of what the church is. And what a relationship with Jesus Christ does, and how a relationship with Jesus Christ works. And certainly, it comes through an individual putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, recognizing their sinfulness and trusting that He alone is the one who makes them right with God. But so many people are today saying, well, why do I need to be a part of a church to have a relationship with God? And you look at this passage in the flow of thought in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has been talking about how God works to bring the individual to a relationship with him. 
how God has worked from before the foundations of the world to choose people so that they would be a part of the body of Christ, that they would be united to Christ and united in this new humanity, this transcultural, international, one body, one new humanity joined together in Jesus Christ. And so having expanded on all the things that Christ has accomplished for us and on our behalf, he gives the implications. And the implications that he says here and that he lays out in these verses are not about, here are the implications of the cross of Jesus Christ for me. But he says, here is what Christ has done as a body. Here is who you are as a community. Let us understand these things. Paul gives three different images Metaphors for the church. Metaphors of the implications of what happens when someone has put their faith in Jesus Christ. He says that you are citizens of God's kingdom, you're members of God's household, and thirdly, that we'll look at the most theologically significant, is that you are stones in God's temple. Well, the first one is this, that you are citizens of God's kingdom. He says, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. The phrase here, strangers and aliens, are technical terms. Strangers being those who were complete foreigners with no rights or privileges. Aliens were non-citizens who dwelt in a city. And aliens were extended the rights, um, customary rights of, you know, the privileges of being a neighbor. But strangers and aliens did not have the privilege of citizenship. You consider their challenge, how they're at the whims of the political powers in the place in which they dwell. And then we get a picture of this when we consider the plight of refugees today and how they're rootless, how they're, at the, how they're adrift, how they're at the whims of the powers and forces of nature, of wealth, of various political gyrations of different countries. And Paul is declaring, saying, listen, apart from Jesus Christ, you are at the whims of these powers. You are at the whims of sin, death, and the devil following the course of this world. But through Jesus Christ, you have been made a citizen of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, which is not a piece of geography, which is not an earthly political movement. But the kingdom of God, which is where God is ruling his people, bestowing privileges and responsibilities on those over whom he rules. And as the people of God, citizens of his kingdom, we are waiting for the day for King Jesus to return and to set up his kingdom over all the earth, over all geography, over every political power and authority that exists on this earth. Through Christ Jesus, you are citizens in this kingdom. It is only citizens who have the full protections and rights of their citizenships, who experience the freedom of being completely free and having the security of the nation to which they belong. The Apostle Paul is writing this passage during the apex of the Roman civilization. At this point, there was no hint of demise for the Roman Empire. And Paul is declaring that there is something more grand than the Roman Empire. There is something better, as wonderful and as great as it is to have citizenship In a great country, there is a greater blessing for nothing compares to be a citizen of the kingdom of God that is transcultural, transnational, interracial, that has endured and will endure beyond any earthly kingdom. And Paul says, you, you individually, you are not what you used to be because of Christ. You were strangers and sojourners. 
You were visitors, refugees with no legal rights, and your status has profoundly changed. But because of Christ Jesus, you are no longer despised residents, but you are citizens and have the full rights and privilege of a citizen. Well, how is this a picture of the church? You know, many people come to a church and they feel they don't belong. They say, you know what, I I didn't grow up in the church. My family's not Christian. We didn't come from this background. And the amazing thing about what God has done through Jesus Christ is no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, is that if you turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he accepts you and bestows on you the citizenship of being a member of the kingdom of God and of being in his care and under his kingdom. And if you're a member of the kingdom of, of your member of God's kingdom, it's not Animal Farm, where all the animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Is that there are no second-class citizens, but you all have your citizenship as being a member, as a citizen of God's kingdom. The second image, and we're going to pull the implications of this together at the end as we look at these three different images. The second picture is that you're citizens of God's kingdom and you are members of God's household. A much more intimate image. That you who had been alienated are now a citizen. You who had been orphaned are now adopted. And you, have been a, you who were estranged have now been brought home. Not only do you have a place in God's kingdom, but you have a place in God's, at God's table. Here's what Paul says. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You now belong in a way like you never did before. Jews and Gentiles, with their historic animosity, are not, now, are not citizens living in a kingdom, living their separate lives in their different ghettos. But now, they are children in the same family. Why? Because they have the same father and the same older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, in the New Testament, the most common term for Christians that's used is the word brethren meaning brothers and sisters who, are ne- who have now been received the adoption as sons and the inheritance as sons. It's the most common term for Christians in the New Testament because it is a brotherhood that crosses barriers. Indeed, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy, telling him, here's how you need to instruct the church. How do you live in the church? Paul says to Timothy, tell everyone to treat one another as family. In a family, everyone serves, everyone loves, there's respect, everyone shares responsibility. And in a family, there is an acknowledgement that the bonds of loyalty transcend any animosity that occurs within that family. Surely, most of you, if you don't have it yourself, know of a family, which is probably almost all of us, that has a family member for whom is not really connected with the rest of the family. Maybe they've made choices that the rest of the family hasn't liked. Maybe they've done things, said things. Maybe they've cut themselves off from the rest of the family. Maybe they've gotten in trouble with the law. Take your pick. Despite all of those things, the family bond transcends it, does it not? Family members might say, you know, that guy is a, a total mess up, but he's ours. But he's still my brother. He's still a part of our family. Your family is part of your identity. What Paul declares is that in Christ Jesus, you have been made members of the household of God. 
members of God's family, where the gospel breaks down barriers and unites hearts in a profound and transcendent way where they take disparate people, disparate orphans, and adopts them and unites them together as one family. What an atrocity then, is it not? When professing Christians treat their church, when professing Christians treat their family as a hotel. You know, something that I'm going to visit occasionally and maybe I'll leave a tip if I've been served well. Instead, what's the calling for us? It's to love our family well, to love the family, and to love the family well because you are members of God's household and you have the same father. The third image, which is the most theologically rich in this passage, is not only are you citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's household, but thirdly, you are stones in God's temple, 20 to 22, that this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul lays out here this picture of the temple, where for a thousand years, the temple in Israel had been the iconic symbol of the people of God. It had been the identity for what it means to be the people of God. Whether it was the temple of Solomon that got destroyed, the people longing for the rebuilding of the temple, which occurred under Zerubbabel, or ultimately the temple that was built under Herod, which was present at the time of Jesus and also at the time that the Apostle Paul was writing this passage. But for a thousand years, the temple has been the identity of the people of God. And in Christ Jesus, Paul is saying, the people of God have a new identity. And that identity has shifted from this physical building. It has shifted to be the new temple that God is building upon Jesus Christ. He describes in this passage the structure of the temple with its foundation, its cornerstone, and its stones, and also the purpose of this temple. Let's take a look at the structure. He says that it is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, what does that mean? Well, no building is stable without a solid foundation. Paul says the foundation is the apostles and prophets. There's some debate as to exactly what Paul means here, but I think the clearest and the best explanation of this is that the apostles and prophets, both of whom had a teaching role, is their commonality. And that the church's foundation is neither the persons, the specific apostles, nor their office, but their teaching. And Paul is referring here to the exclusive few, the apostles and prophets, who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ. The exclusive few who not only were eyewitnesses, but also were appointed by God to write the New Testament as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the writers of the New Testament knew that they were writing the Scriptures. They knew that they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what they wrote, they expected people to believe, to preserve, and for the church and for Christians to obey. Practically, what does this mean for a church such as Cornerstone and the church at large? means that the church, the temple that God is building, is built on the New Testament. It is the foundational document. And just as the foundation of a building cannot be altered, 
cannot be modified or subtracted from without compromising the entire structure. Similarly, the New Testament and the Bible as a whole cannot and must not be altered or modified by the latest preacher nor by the whims of the current political age or the current cultural climate. The church, this new temple that God is building, lives and dies. It stands and falls. It either grows or it atrophies by its dependence on the foundation, which is the Word of God. Second piece of the structure he identifies, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the ass part of a building that holds the whole structure together. It's what holds the building together. It's what holds it steady. As the building is being built, it is what keeps the other bricks, the other stones in line. The building is, the building depends upon the cornerstone. It is the cohesion of the building is tied to the cornerstone. And the growth of the structure, everything relates back to the cornerstone of this building. It's a powerful image that Paul uses, particularly on the temple metaphor, because the cornerstones of the temple, of Herod's temple, were enormous. I couldn't get a picture of one that was good, but on the southern wall, they've been recently, they've excavated one of them a few years ago, and the length of one of the cornerstones was over 38 feet long. 38 feet long for one stone on on this temple. They are absolutely huge, and Paul is declaring that the cornerstone is Jesus Christ, that he is the one who holds the church together, That as it is being built, he is the one who keeps it in line. That the whole building depends upon Jesus Christ. That the cohesion of the structure depends upon every individual stone being securely tied and securely united to the cornerstone. And if not, it becomes unstable, it disintegrates, and it falls apart. That's the cornerstone. Well, how does the rest of the building being built? It's being built with you. You as the individual stones of this new temple, verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Apostle Peter in the book of um, 2 Peter, Paul, Peter writes that you are living stones being built in the holy temple of God, making it explicitly clear. Remarkable statement that Paul makes, that the Gentiles who were once forbidden from crossing this boundary are now the ones who are being integrally built into the very temple itself as its integral members to make the structure. Well, that's the aspects of the structure, its foundation, its cornerstone, and the individual stones. Well, what is its purpose? Paul tells us, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The ancient people, the Old Testament people knew that God did not actually dwell in the temple. They knew that the whole universe could not contain God. But they also knew that God said he would manifest his glory in the temple to show that he is not far off and distant, but that he dwells with his people. The new temple that God is building is not a physical building nor a localized shrine, but rather it is the spiritual building of God's family, all of these individual stones of every race, tongue, tribe, race, and nation, this transcultural international temple being built together 
And it is as it is being built together that the temple becomes, Paul says, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is he identifying? That the place that God has chosen to reveal himself and to reveal his glory is not in a physical structure, but it is in the unity of the people of God. It is as the people of God are joined together that God is known and experienced and he is, and he is worshipped. And this building that God is building through, upon Jesus Christ is not yet complete. Here is the future destiny, verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together, present progressive tense, an ongoing action. What is God doing? He is continuing to build this temple until it is complete with people of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation joined together as the people of God to be a dwelling place for God where God will dwell in the midst and among his people. Held together, built on the foundation of the Bible, bound to the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. So let's take these different images. Jesus Christ died, yes, to save you, but much more than that to make you citizens of God's kingdom, to make you members of God's household, to make you into a temple which would be the dwelling place for God. Jesus Christ died to build and preserve his church. What a radically different picture than this concept that is so present within American individualism. People who are so who are really excited about Jesus and what Jesus can do for them individually. But who say, I don't really need to be connected to anything. I don't need to bother with the church. I don't need to be a part of those things. I don't need to bother with the messiness of family relationships. You know, at one time, I really didn't like the church, personally. I grew up in a congregation where there was pretty gross hypocrisy. We had a massive scandal There was a very strong pressure for institutional conformity for those who were a part of it. I didn't like the church. And so I said, well, why bother? I mean, why bother with the church? I can know Jesus on my own. And then as I grew up, someone was like, well, why even commit to a church when when I can... You know, I can choose from several different different churches. I really like the Bible study at this one church, and I really like the music at this other church, and if I don't like the preaching anywhere, at least I can listen to a preacher online. Why commit to any given congregation? And then when it comes to giving, why on earth would I ever give to the church when I can give give directly to a missionary that I know exactly what they're doing? And many people treat the church as unnecessary. They treat it as a as a hindrance to doing great things for God. And quite frankly, I used to think that. I would never say this, but I mean, I used to feel superior to others. I I didn't need the church like the way that those church people needed the church. I I didn't need to be a part of a Sunday school class. I could read a book on my own. I didn't need to be in a small group. I mean, I had Christian friends. I mean, I, I knew my spiritual needs. My needs were unique. I was able to choose what was best for me. I mean, in terms of fellowship and accountability, I mean, my, my close friends who were Christians were certainly enough fellowship and accountability. I didn't need anything else. I could read the Bible on my own. I could pray on my own. I could listen to a sermon on the Internet. I could listen to pro- professionally developed worship music and turn my stereo up really loud and be surrounded by the bass. 
I could do that. Why would I need to be a part of it? You know, and I felt that I could do more for God apart from the church, particularly if I got involved in an organization that had a very narrowly defined mission. Then I could really serve God by, by doing this specific ministry because they're actually doing something. But I had a problem, but then something happened to me. I started to read the Bible and it messed me up. And I started to read about how much Jesus loves the church and how much the Apostle Paul lived for the church and loved the church and he served the church. And it hit me one day that says, you know what, if Jesus loves the church, I, I, I should too. If, if I love Jesus, then I'm going to love what he loves. And if I want to be conformed to be more like Christ, then that means that his loves are going to become my loves. And that what he cherishes, cherishes is what I'm going to cherish. And that what he's passionate about, I'm going to be passionate about. And I realized that I needed to repent of my selfish and self-centered Christianity that was focused on none other but myself. I needed to reprioritize my life so that my loves would be aligned with Jesus' loves. And so that I could be more like Christ and work to make the church beautiful because Jesus died to make the church beautiful. It was a, over a year ago, Doug Rosenbaum, one of our elders who uh, moved away to Arizona last year, he comes up to me after church one day in his, you know, his exuberant joy that Doug had. And Doug comes up to me and he goes, Well, I figured you out. And I'm like, that's great. I need some help. Um, he's like, I figured you out. And I'm like, okay. And he said, I finally figured you out. He goes, you, you love the church. He's like, no, I mean, you really, you really love the church. And I said, I, I do. I, I do love the church. I don't love ministry. I don't love preaching, but I do love the church. And the church, the love for the church and Christ's love for the church animates my life. In fact, there's a joke in our church office. We regularly get advertisements for various church swag, you know, that you can get and pass out and stuff. And there's this one that comes through often that Vicky's saying, I need to get this for you. And there's this T-shirt that says, I love the church. And I'm like, that's me, because I love the church. <laughs> And I love this church, but I love, the ch I love the church at large. You know, I think in my own life, you know, I'm, as a minister of the gospel, I'm called to proclaim the whole counsel of God, which is a great privilege and honor to do so and a great joy to do so. But I think from my own personal journey, I was thinking if there's something that I could pass on of my own personal faith into the lives of other people, it would probably be the two top things probably would be this. Number one, is for people really to know the joy of living in the righteousness of Christ. And the second thing would be a love for the church. To love what Jesus loves. To love what the Apostle Paul loves. To love what the New Testament says. And, and, and this concept of love for the church and what Christ has done for the church has been so diluted by the individualism of American culture, it is such a foreign concept. People regularly come to our church and they say, why are you guys so concerned about church membership? Because the Bible is. That's why. I mean, belonging to a visible church is not optional for followers of Jesus Christ. 
the New Testament assumes, the basic assumption is that every Christian is a part and a member of a local church. The New Testament knows nothing of this modern idea that says, I'm I'm a member of the church universal. I don't need to be a part of the local church. The New Testament would say, what are you talking about? Throughout the pages of scriptures, the calling of Christians again and again and again is to make the invisible truths of the gospel a visible reality. And the New Testament pictures your identity in the church as a fundamental part of your reality, as a fundamental part of who you are, belonging to the kingdom of God, a member of God's household, stones in God's temple. This this sense, this identity of being in the church, the body of Christ, why do I say that? Because Paul says that the body of Christ is the church. Your identity in the body of Christ is more important than where you work, the neighborhood that you live in, the school district that your kids, that your, that your house is located in. You know, periodically, you know, people who live transient jobs, transient lives, whether they're students or in the military or, or they're here for only a short period of time, say, well, should I, you know, should I join a church if I'm not going to be around that long? Absolutely. In fact, to the much that it's, to as much as, as it's within your control, Christians should choose a church and make sure that there is a solid church in the community that they might move to before making a decision to move there. And they certainly should find a church that they can be connected to before buying a house. Because if you're separate from community, if you're separate from the church, you're rejecting the New Testament pattern. It is not good to be a dismembered Christian. It's not good to be a stray arm disconnected from the body of Christ. This past week, I went up to Hopkins for a follow-up appointment. Afterwards, we went out and grabbed lunch at this funky diner in Baltimore that was decorated in pastels and psychedelic colors. And it was the decorations, the whole building, all the decorations inside were this collection of, of dismembered mannequins and baby dolls. Like all the walls, the ceilings, everywhere is baby dolls, upside down doll houses, little bicycles and what have you, and you know, various decorations on the whole place. It's kind of disturbing. It's not good to be a dismembered Christian. Right? To be separate from the church is to be like a citizen living outside its country. It's to be like an American living in Mosul right now. It's to be like a son or a daughter or a brother or sister who's estranged from your siblings and estranged from your family and who is refusing to go home for Thanksgiving, refusing to come around at Christmas time, refusing to join the family reunion. It's like being a stone that is scattered outside of the temple that is being built. Or to go back to barbecue, it's like a charcoal briquette that is disconnected from the fire. That a briquette cannot grow hotter by itself. It cannot reach the maximum temperature on its own. It has to be as it is united to others. Only then does it reach its full potential. And when it is isolated, instead of growing hotter, instead of glowing brighter, it just fades. 
And so this text forces us to ask the question, are you a part of the church? Are you a dismembered Christian? And if you're a dismembered Christian, get connected. And if you are connected to the body, to the church, it calls you and challenges you. It says, do you love the church as Jesus does? Do you love the church as Jesus loves the, loves the church? Do you love the bride of Christ as much as Jesus loves the bride of Christ? And you know what? Jesus knows, to a much greater degree than any one of us, how ugly that bride can be. But he loves her. And he died for her. And he lives that she might be purified and might be radiant and beautiful. And so as individual members, individual stones, are you building up the church or are you just consuming? You know, fortunately, here at Cornerstone, we have a lot of people who serve. And this church would not be what it is today if it were not for you who are actively engaged in building up the body of Christ. And so thank you. Thank you for loving Jesus. Thank you for being obedient to Christ. Thank you for making the church be more of what it should be. And may we as individual members build the church that she would be radiant and beautiful. That we would adore Jesus Christ and delight in his adoration, not of us as individuals, but in his adoration of his bride, which is the church. The day is coming when the fullness of the kingdom of God will arrive. When the household of God is going to be united together in a giant family reunion. When this temple that is being built will be completed with people of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation and will be a dwelling place for God and the dwelling place of God will be with man. What a grand celebration that opening will be. What a glorious day for this family reunion. What a wonderful day to celebrate our citizenship. What a glorious day. To thank God not for saving me, but for saving the church. And may by our lives, may we usher that day in. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for the bride of Christ. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for the new humanity. Thank you for the kingdom of God. Thank you for the household of God, the family of God. Thank you for this temple that you are being built. Father, I pray that today that you would bring clarity to the confusion that is so rampant in the lives of Christians these days, who have somehow become so deceived and so convinced that the Christian life is about me and my relationship with Jesus, and not about you and your relationship with the church of which by your grace you have made me a part of it. So, Lord, would you help us to love our family well? Would you help us to love our family, delight our family, be thankful for our family? Lord, would you help us to do this because you do, because you love the church and you died to unite her to yourself? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.